Good morning. I'm Mark, and uh, we're continuing in the book of James, which is a wonderful book of inspired wisdom about practical living. And the two questions James poses in this passage are, what kind of harvest do you want to reap in your life? And what is the wisdom that is going to get you there? James says that there are two different kinds of wisdom, and each one leads to a different behavior. There's a wisdom from the world, and then there's a wisdom that comes from heaven. James says this. He says, I'm so sorry. I've completely... jumped. He says there are two kinds of wisdom. A wisdom that leads to peace, and that comes from heaven. And he says it leads to our promoting peace and becoming peacemakers. Now, I don't know how you're feeling this morning. You may feel internally at peace. You may feel not at peace in your relationships with others in the world. But what this passage shows us is that God longs for you to know his peace And he longs for you also to become an agent of his peace to other people. Globally, at the moment, as uh, we just heard in prayer, we're facing a potential invasion of the Ukraine by Russia. Nationally, we live in an age of tribalism, where a single tweet can set off a firestorm. And within this, we're grappling with how to do relationships in our lives 24-7. Who is God calling us to be as a people as we gather here this morning and then as we go out into our student halls and our front lines? There's a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy says to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. And Lucy replies, uh, Charlie replies, but I thought you had inner peace. And Lucy says to him, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. (laughs) And James is writing to a community where there was some outer obnoxiousness of behavior going on. He's really taking them to task. Lucy thinks that she can feel peace in her heart, but that it's okay to be outwardly obnoxious to others. James says, not so. He says, if you've got a real inner peace, which doesn't come from a kind of bubble bath moment, which comes from Jesus, then that will result in outer peacefulness and peacemaking and moral goodness and justice, what he calls a harvest of righteousness. James then, he goes right to the heart of who we are and how we lead our lives And he says that there are two simple prescriptions for living wisely and living well. And the first is this, seek true wisdom. Seek true wisdom. The fruit of your behavior is directly related to the source of wisdom from which it comes. Whether your wisdom is from the world or whether it comes from heaven. James writes, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In other words, there is a wisdom that is available to us from heaven where we can have our 
eyes in the air lifted to heaven, and yet our feet on the ground. Because the word for humility actually comes from a word meaning earth. In other words, this is the grounded wisdom. And if your wisdom doesn't come from heaven, what does James say about that? He says we may boast about it or deny the truth. In other words, we may brag about having wisdom or we may twist the truth in order to try and claim to be wise when we're not. But James says the test is always in the motivations of our heart and what comes out of our heart as our outward behavior. The proof is in the pudding. It's our walk, not our talk, that counts. Now, none of us can stay in a place of continuing peace. It is not possible. We all experience restlessness within. And James has just talked about this in his letter using some powerful images. He's spoken at times of our being like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Of us being like a great forest set on fire by a small spark. Of our tongue being a restless evil full of deadly poison. I don't know whether any of those images resonate with how you may be feeling today. James says we're fish in the world's fish tank and that the wisdom that comes within that fish tank from the world is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil, which is a lot of negative influences weighing upon each one of us. And the result is disorder and every evil practice, unkind behavior, verbal sparring with others, breakdown in our relationships, even war. And James asks us to linger just a moment longer on this bad news before he'll come to the good news. Well, as a family, we love to play uh, board games. And as I'm sure all of you know now, there's a whole generation, a new generation of board games, which are different from the old ones. So first of all, uh, marketed in 1933, we have uh, a classic, Monopoly. Who likes Monopoly? Put up a hand if you've played Monopoly. Yeah, we love this in our household. Uh, but here's another one, first created in 2008, long before COVID. This is a very different kind of game, Pandemic. <laughs> now, many of you will know, Monopoly is a competitive game. Yeah, we seek to build our own kingdom and bankrupt others. Pandemic is what is called a cooperative game, one of the new generation of games. And in this, we work together as a team, pooling our skill sets in order to try and find a common cure and defeat a global pandemic. In other words, we work to create a shared kingdom. Very, very different. And as Christians, we can build our own kingdoms or we can build God's kingdom. James is asking, which are we doing? I think Jesus actually would enjoy playing both of these games. They're both a lot of fun. I think he'd love both of them. But the game that he plays out in his life is the cooperative one. That's the one he's interested in. Now, like Jesus, James teaches us to spot warning signs of false wisdom showing up in our behavior. He says we can harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts. 
And when we hear these kind of strong words, it's easy to think, that's not me. I'm not selfishly ambitious. I'm not bitterly envious. But James is really talking about a partisan spirit. I'm partial to chocolate, but I'm also partial to all kinds of other things. I've got desires and strong preferences, and I'm sure you do too. In the Bible, envy and ambition usually spring up uh, when people are in close proximity, not far apart, and usually between near equals. So we have envy between brothers, close companions, and wives. Think of Jacob and Esau. Think of Cain and Abel. Think of Peter and John. Sarah and Hagar, Rachel and Leah. Few of us think of ourselves as grossly ambitious or bitterly envious, but our close relationships can reveal a different picture. The fact is those nearest to us can often bring to the surface things within us that we didn't know were there. Think of a, a fellow student who kind of just gets under your skin. Think of a fellow worker in your workplace. Think of a fellow parent. Think of sibling rivalry. Consider this, James was actually Jesus' younger brother. But in Mark 3, it says Jesus' brothers heard of him ministering and thought he was out of his mind. John 7 says they didn't believe in him and they mocked him. And now James writes this letter after having met his older brother, risen from the dead. Imagine, you spend your three years of your life running after your elder brother, mopping up behind him as he outrageously claims that he is the son of God, as he attracts thousands. You feel bitter envy in your heart at the attention he's being given, and then after his death, he appears to you resurrected, isn't it likely that you might want to write about the perils of envy to other people? Bitter envy, selfish ambition. To be selfish am selfishly ambitious, it doesn't mean necessarily being like Alexander the Great or Attila the Hun. No, it can simply be about promoting ourselves in a conversation, putting our platform first, trying to look better than others or to get the better of others. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. It's about feeling resentful of another person's good. It springs from a fear of competition. Envy doesn't like rivals. It's a competitive game. It kills kindness and it excludes love. And the fact is you can study and you can work alongside others who are far more gifted than you are and not feel any envy at all. And yet then one particular person can step into your life and trigger these strong feelings. Your best friend is promoted over you at work suddenly. Uh, another parent at the school gates displays brilliant parenting skills. Somebody uh, whose talents you're very aware of suddenly feels to be putting you in the shade. 
I remember a moment early in my career as a theatre director, uh, long before I came to faith, when I had a difficult time at work, a knockback, and I was unemployed. And I found myself reading newspaper reviews of a fellow theatre director who was having a string of successful productions, kind of one after the other. And I remember well reading a first review and feeling really pleased for this individual that he was doing so well. And then reading the next review and feeling incredibly pleased when there were suddenly one or two negative comments about the production. And by the next review, sincerely wanting to kind of read a critical panning, my heart was changing. It was changing quick. And then suddenly he was being invited to direct his first film. And I was becoming green with envy. But I couldn't, or I wouldn't, stop myself. And then one day I opened a trade paper and I read that uh, an anonymous letter writer was writing letters to London theatre producers, bad-mouthing this theatre director. And suddenly I saw the terrible consequences of envy played out in front of my eyes. And I was so shocked and I was so disturbed that I actually thought, maybe I'm writing those letters in my sleep. <laughs> maybe I'm sleepwalking at night and going to the post box and sending them. And I remember each morning I would have to check a box of stamps, a book of stamps that I had in order to make sure that I hadn't used some of them in the night, unknown. I even considered putting sand inside the front door to kind of see if my footprints went out to the post box. This is the effect of envy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Selfish ambition and bitter envy, they come out of a kind of insecurity of identity when we're not feeling secure in Christ. If I feel I am less than someone else, I might try to puff myself up by boasting or by climbing over others or by secretly willing their misfortune. You've believed a lie that the pool of resources in life is limited or you've believed a lie that you're somehow deficient and that you will only be complete when you have this other thing that is out there. Others are a threat. You try to create a monopoly out of your resources. And the result of these dynamics, James says, in our lives is disorder, disorder, radiostatic in our relationships with one another. Selfish ambition and envy block the progress of God's kingdom. Life becomes competitive, no longer cooperative. James doesn't mince his words. Every evil practice is the result. And this evil sabotages not only the social good, the common good. Envy and selfish ambition always ultimately backfire. For James, they are a loser's game. Well, that's the bad news. Now the good news. And the good news is this, that God in his great mercy 
wants us to confront these behaviors within ourselves and bring them to him and confess. This is not failure. This is the regular Christian life. I'm fascinated that the disciples of Jesus lived with him for three years, cheek by jowl, right in his presence, rubbing shoulders with him every moment of the day, and yet they experienced all the issues that James is talking about here. So let's come to three time-honored ways that we can deal with these things. First of all, repent and confess of any of these motives within your heart. Bring them to the cross and know the deep, restoring forgiveness of your Father in heaven. Secondly, come to the God who heals. Pray that God will heal this wound of lack or rejection or inner poverty within you. Be renewed today in who you are in Christ. And then thirdly, where you have envied others, remind yourself of the blessings that God has showered upon you and pray blessings upon the lives of others. But as well as pleading with us to seek true wisdom, James does one other thing in this passage. Secondly, he says, pursue true peace. Maybe you're experiencing a lack of peace at the moment in your family relationships or your student halls or your workplace. Or you feel that you've been an agent or a victim of the kind of behaviors that James is describing. Maybe you're simply feeling restless within. You're not feeling internally at peace. The great news is that this is not where God's story ends. James now announces heaven's wisdom. And he says it's first of all pure. It's an uncontaminated spring full of crystal clear water. He describes this wisdom as peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. When we're coming under this wisdom, James says that we are impartial as a people. We're like a, a finely tuned pair of scales. We don't show any favoritism or any partisan spirit. We're not two-faced and we don't blow hot and cold. So how do we access this wisdom? Well, we look to heaven. That's what the Bible tells us. Hebrew 13 speaks of the God of peace. Ephesians 4, of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of peace. Ephesians 6, of the gospel of peace. And Isaiah 9, long before Jesus' birth, of him coming as the prince of peace. In 1962, Don and Carol Richardson, who were Canadian missionaries, were ministering amongst um, cannibal tribes in New Guinea. And um, these tribes, the Sawi, actually honored treachery as an ideal, as a way of behaving. They would befriend other villages, and then they would betray them and kill them and eat them. 
And they were far more interested in hearing from the Richardsons about the character of Judas than they were about Jesus. And the Richardsons found themselves in this terrible conflict that was going on between two Sawi villages. Finally, they became so desperate about the impossibility of resolving this that they announced to the Sawi that they were going to leave. At which point the Sawi tribe, fearing the loss of Western resources, said to the Richardsons, we'll make our peace. And what happened next astonished the Richardsons. It went like this. A man ran from one of the Sawi villages carrying his only child across the enemy lines into the other village and left that child there. And then a father from this camp ran with his only child to that village and released that child and left that child there. And the villagers in each tribe put their hands upon those two children and pledged their guarantee of peace. And when Don Richardson asked what this was all about, the Sawi said, you've been urging us to make peace. Don't you know it's impossible to have peace without a peace child? And Don saw that God was showing him a whole new way of speaking to the Sawi about Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Because God sends his only son, his peace child to the world in order to reconcile us to him, that we might know his forgiveness and feel his deep peace, be at one with our Holy Father. We need a peace, child, each of us, in our lives, in order to be forgiven and to become a person of peace. Do you know this peace child who God has given you? Will you accept him in your arms? Jesus, the peace child and the prince of peace, says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. When you accept Jesus by faith, God adopts you as his child. You become a new woman or man in Christ, and you begin to grow in the family likeness. And in this peace, you can rest secure now in who you are, you're no longer swayed by the promotion or the demotion of the world. You don't have to look good to others to feel good about yourself. You are loved and valued by your Father in heaven. And you become a peacemaker who, filled with the spirit of peace, can bring that to your context. Peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. If you sow in the rich, dark soil of peace, God will raise up a mighty harvest. 
Well, I began with monopoly and pandemic, the competitive game and the cooperative game. And Jim Decove was a Canadian designer of early cooperative board games. Listen to his account of how his vision for these games began. He says, I'm in our backyard on the porch watching the neighborhood kids playing some games. The kids are aggressive. They push each other around. Strength is used to dominate. They pick on each other's weaknesses, exploiting them for their own advantage. A little later, when the kids are again deciding on a game, I shout out to them that I know a new game that they might like to try. I describe how I will start the game by covering my eyes at the home post and counting to 100. Everyone is to, else is to hide so that no one around them can see them. We'll pretend that everyone is lost, and I'm coming to rescue them. And when I find someone, we'll join hands, and we'll rush back, and we'll both touch the post, which is the rescue station. And then the two of us will go out and try to find someone else and rescue them and bring them to the post. He says, I finished counting up to 100 and I wander out, keeping my eyes open. I find a little girl and with great delight, big person and little person run hippity hop to the rescue station. Already I feel something tremendous is about to burst open within me. I'm joyously discovering something here. The child looks at me with eyes free of fearing that this big person is going to wipe her out of the game. Later on the porch, I reflect more on the game. I know that this is a turning point in my life. I can't look back now. The laughter of the kids, the collective goodwill, no one eliminated from the game, even the youngest, playing and making a contribution right to the end. The anchor in that game was the rescue station. And the church is God's rescue station. And when we're filled with the spirit of peace, and we partner with God, and we work cooperatively, we can go out and we can transform the lives of others and bring them here to this rescue station. What kind of harvest do you want to reap in your life? Follow Jesus, the peace child, the prince of peace, the man of wisdom from heaven. Seek true wisdom. Pursue true peace. Amen.